0: personal views and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are their own and are not legal advice or official statements by their organizations. Hello, my name is Debbie Reynolds, they call me the Data Diva. This is the Data Diva Talks Privacy Podcast, where we discuss data privacy issues with industry leaders around the world with information that businesses need to know now. I have a special guest on the show all the way from Boston, Massachusetts, Beatrice Bhatti. She is the Vice President and Chief Privacy Officer at Double Verify. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Well, I'm happy to have you on the show. You and I have been in chatting probably for quite some time about trying to get you on the show. And then I I ran into Jeff Jokic in Washington, D.C. at IFPP, and he told me he's going to meet you. I'm like, to know, Beatrice, I want her on the show. So that's how we ended up. Well,
1: I'm glad I made it. It's, it's, uh, it's an honor to be here.
0: Well, it's great. I follow you on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm glad we're getting to know each other now. I sort of LinkedIn know you. But I'm always fascinated by you and the things that you say and the types of commentary that you make, because I feel like you're a truth teller like me, sort of tell it like it is. And that's what I really like about you.
1: I appreciate that. I certainly try. I don't I don't like a lot of the posturing. It's It, it reflects in my negotiation style when we do, say like, I do contracting sometimes, but obviously I do privacy and security documentation and there'll be several times where you know you'll get on with one of the the you know the type of lawyer i'm talking about and they'll be like well in my 30 years of experience this has never happened to me and it's like uncapped liability i'm like yes it has people ask you to cap liability it's totally fine you don't need to do that (laughs) we can make it through or not maybe this will be the first time you agree to a liability cap we'll we'll explore this experience together all good
0: yeah. I think it's hard to tell a data person about your gut feelings, right? It's like, yeah, I don't think so.
1: Yeah, I know. It's it's always it's it's just I think it's also there's a lot of edging in the industry, not out of like malice. I mean, there are some people out there who edge just because they always want to edge their bets, but there are some people out there who are like, Yeah, I don't know what's gonna happen. <laughs> it's which is a very legitimate thing to say when ninety percent of what you do is Undecided, uncharted territory. Like, what's going to happen with GDPR with this decision? Uh, unclear. We'll, we'll,
0: <laughs> I think it's hard because so many people, maybe in the way that they were trained, is all about looking in the rearview mirror and thinking about what precedent was said in the past and not really about the future.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a byproduct of a lot of laws being new, right? It's, um, it's funny. It was, um, it was one of the things that made it possible for me and a lot of other people to get in the industry. the The lack of an established um, contingent of people working in the industry and established patterns and established decisions and really well um, you know, settled law. Created an opening for an entire new market uh, of lawyers and privacy managers and privacy engineers and you know nowadays it's it's such an asset especially for the technical people I think we're we're looking at the phase where a lot of the technical engineering architecture experts are getting into privacy um, not just at the big companies I mean places like Google have had architecture engineers with a specialization in privacy for a while uh, but a lot of smaller places are dedicating resources to those roles. And you know, I I use it as a hook for my engineering team and my product team to become involved in sort of pushing forward our plans. I'm always like, you know, this is a really valuable learning experience. It's gonna convert in real um in a real asset for you in your in your career because having experience and working in applied privacy um um projects is just, it's something that few people have, um, especially outside of those big tech um, corporations. So I, every time I I need people to join a project, I'm like, think of the possibilities (laughs) for your own career.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell me what sparked your interests in privacy?
1: Um, I will admit that I did not have a profound calling. Um, My husband always jokes about the fact that I was born to do privacy because I myself am a very private person. Um, Sometimes we'll be driving and he'll be on the phone. He'll get so mad at me for saying this. He'll be on the phone with his mom. And he'll be like, Oh, yeah, Beatrice did this. And I will like, hit him and be like, stop telling everyone my business. Your mother doesn't need to know where I was on Friday night, uh, which is kind of a funny thing. My mom was always like, people don't need to know your business kind of thing. Um, I'm also European, which brings you up with just a different perception of privacy in general, but it wasn't the, the business that I tried to go into. I went to law school in Europe and then I went to law school in the States. And my goal was to get into international um, patent, work probably patent litigation that was my big calling when i was a kid i saw Perry Mason and i thought i was going to be a lawyer just like that in courtrooms calling people out you know or to to make a more recent uh, uh quote you know you can't handle the truth kind of lawyer but as it turns out one i couldn't join JAG because i wasn't a citizen and two not a lot of people screaming you can't handle the truth in patent litigation Um uh, <laughs> also um when I moved here, I found out that the vast majority of people that work in patent litigation and in patent work in general have technical backgrounds, which I didn't have. That's not the case in Italy, for example, where I'm from. A lot of, first of all, in Italy, you go to law school right out of high school, you don't have an undergraduate degree. Um, so you kind of develop the skills over time to the extent you need them. We also don't have this dichotomy between patent prosecution and patent litigation. Like we just don't have that. Everybody does a little bit of everything. Uh, we obviously have engineers that write patents, but it's it doesn't work like here. But my goal was ultimately to live here and try to leverage this, you know, legal training from a civil law and a common law country. And it didn't pan out the way I thought it would, because when I tried to get into IP, it didn't really work for me. So um, when I finally ended up getting a job at a law school, Uh, I, I had a choice at the time between joining a health and wellness company that was part of the Virgin group and a kind of unknown tech company, which later turned like who was walking, they were working on early blockchain technology. in hindsight, I probably should have gone there, but if I hadn't, I probably wouldn't have gotten into privacy. So it's, it's kind of funny how that worked out. Uh, Probably would have been much wealthier if I had, though. Um, But I ended up joining Virgin Pulse, which is this um, wellness and well-being company um, in the employee benefit space. And when I got there, it was 2017, and they relied on outside counsel to do privacy work. Uh, I got in to do contracting work. So my full-time life was focused on commercial contracting, which anyone who's worked on commercial contracting knows that it goes way beyond your work hours. It follows you at home Um, because, you know, and the quarter rush and all of that good stuff. So as we got closer to 2018, we saw a massive increase in privacy documentation and the the cost of getting outside counsel involved in them every time was getting out of control. And I was kind of like, we probably have to do some work around the technology and the, it was an end user experience. There was an app and a website that, that users put information in, including sensitive information. We probably have to work a little bit on the way we do consent. We have to do this. We have to do that. Um, and it got to the point where I, you know, I was given the option to do it myself. And we're like, oh, you seem to have an interest in this. Why don't you do it? And I was very worried about it because I had no experience in working with product, working with engineering, working with privacy. It was very tangential. I had picked up from the outside counsel, uh people some about negotiating the DPAs, but not enough. I'd never read the GDPR at that point. Um, I had no reason to actually get into anything other than Article 28. Um and I remember calling my dad, me being an only child and a girl, of course, I called my dad and asked him, you know, do you think I should sort of shift my career in this direction and do this, you know, compliance project that I have no experience with? And he was like, well, how long has GDPR been enforceable? And I was like, well, it's not yet. It's going to be enforceable in May 2018. like, Then you have the same experience enforcing it as everyone else, <laughs> which is kind of a wild thing to say. Uh, but it inspired me enough to say, okay, well, I'll try it. And if it goes wrong, it went wrong and we'll figure it out from there. But so far, no one has called me out. My imposter syndrome lives with me permanently, but um, I have somehow glided through uh, <laughs> through stuff and figured it out on my own mostly. I, I was lucky enough to, even though I worked in really small companies when no one else did privacy, was lucky enough to make a lot of friends in the community um andy dale was was a big um influencing mentor and in my even in my career decisions to move into ad tech um and you know
0: i love andy
1: yeah andy's great and he's so generous with his time um and you know he's always willing to have a chat and help you out and he's the guy i called when when i needed to figure out if i wanted to stay in the job that i had or if i wanted to move into ad tech So. It kind of just happened. I didn't have this like, you know, I want to work in privacy thing the way kids do nowadays, because, you know, seven or eight years ago, it, nobody even talked about it in law school. Like I went into to a fairly competitive law school and there was hundreds of elective classes and nothing was related to privacy or security. It was just a not talked about topic. Um, so... And I don't come from a family of lawyers or technologists, so I wouldn't have even known that it was a career option at that point in my life. Um, so that's how that happened.
0: Well, you've done very well navigating that for yourself.
1: Thank you. I try. I, I always say it's 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 a lot of hard work and and definitely a lot of luck because in the business, you end up having to make a lot of decisions based on very little information, which is the opposite of what you're taught to do in law school. <laughs> so law school, kind of what what you were saying earlier when we were chatting is really exists in this universe of decades, sometimes hundreds of years of precedent. And privacy is not like that. Like you can make some inferences, you can make some deduction based on how similar issues have been settled. But, you know, A lot of the time you're like, okay, well, the most history we have about privacy is like 50, 60 years of principles in some legislation. Um, You know, America's perception of privacy before 25 or 30 years ago was rights against search search and seizure, which (laughs) to an online app is questionable. So it's very hard to take those concepts and be like, okay, well, based on this, I think this is where you know the court is gonna go or the rules going to go. It's like there's there's just no bearing whatsoever on the final like outcome. So it's it's complicated.
0: I agree. And I think trying to look at it in that lens just doesn't really work. And I think that's another reason why we need more regulation around privacy because basically people are trying to as these cases come up, different courts are ruling on them on different ways. There isn't a trend in one direction or another. It just depends on the court, the day, what the understanding of the lawyers and the judge about those technology issues at that point.
1: It's especially interesting in a place like the United States because of the the like very nature of the federal government and state rights and all of those you know all of the amazing aspects of the experiment in democracy that's been going on for the last 200 years lots of it good some of it work in progress that's that's how I like to think about it it is a young nation if you if if you really think about how long it's been around so um I think with privacy and especially information privacy it's It's so difficult to operate in this broken down way when the internet and technology does not operate in this broken down way. Like at least when you think about it in Europe, you had the fail safe of the language issue. Like even before you had GDPR, I mean, Europe figured out that you needed more consistent data practices across the union because of the border issue But even then, at least, you know, you could say, well, there's language barriers. If you're creating an app in German, it's less likely that a French user might. There were some limitations that kind of helped build barriers that otherwise don't normally exist in the Internet world. But in the U.S., you don't have that at all. It's everybody kind of speaks the same English across the country. Some some slang differentiation um but you know the the y'all not going to keep you from the the very nature of technology and the internet and the fact that having a california or a utah or a massachusetts regulation is just untenable like my phone we have a home in in new hampshire that is very close to the border with massachusetts my phone can't tell where i am sometimes they're like, it can't figure out if I'm in Massachusetts or in New Hampshire and that's a problem. Um, and it's it's funny because some of these local regulations, as well-intentioned as they are, are gonna lead us to collecting more and more information about people. You're gonna have to track people that much more closely, that much more specifically, to even know where they are to make sure that you're not walking afoul of certain rules. Um so it's 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 really an, a difficult thing to balance, and you see it with children's uh, protections as well. Like on the one hand, all of the policy intent behind it is fantastic, but a lot of the result of it is we have to build up much more. We're well, not us because we don't work in children's data, but social media platforms and other websites are going to have to build up much more in-depth profiles about children to know that they're children. You're going to have to ask. For more government documentation, I I was just reading an article in the New York Times last night about this this fascinating law in Louisiana that I'd never heard of uh, that apparently went into effect last year that affects websites and content providers um, that may display content that is considered harmful to children and in order to make that content available they you, you need to verify people's age they do it by using an online driver's license system um and you know they they were explaining how there's no data actually exchanged and it's just a verification process and and those systems can work but it is a lot more data that you're you know putting into other systems and it's a lot more faith that you're putting into these products and we've seen the biggest tech companies have security failures. So it does beg the question, like, is it good that there are all these companies with that much information solely for the purpose of verifying whether or not you can access a website? It's, a lot of people make comparisons with accessing a bar, but it's a little different when you have a bouncer and you show him your driver's license for two seconds and he's forgotten it two seconds later versus you're inputting all this information in an app. Uh, it's It's definitely like more and more information going out there it it seems counterintuitive but i don't know how else you could do it
0: yeah that's really difficult right right so i always tell people more data more problems right
1: yeah but
0: so the more data you collect the more problems yeah yeah, yeah
1: but if the law tells you you got to verify a b and c yeah what more data it is it's it's actually one of the things that i thought was really funny about um CCPA and the data subject requests, when they first came out, they had this authentication language, like you have to authenticate the user. And when you have very little data as a, as a provider, as a company, how do you authenticate a user? Are you going to collect more information about them solely for the purpose of authenticating it? It, it seems counterintuitive. Um, so it's, it's, it's rather interesting, um, how. Our intent to create legislation, which presumably also focuses on minimization as one of its major principles, because that is one of the the fundamental principles of privacy is inevitably going to lead us in the opposite direction.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's very confusing and it's hard to read the tea leaves and figure out what's the right approach or the right balance. I want to talk a little bit about transparency. I guess we have the same issue with transparency, where we're saying minimize data, don't collect too much, but make sure that you're being transparent about what you collect. And I think one of the challenges with transparency is that companies traditionally had not ever had to be as transparent as these privacy laws and regulations are asking them to be now. What are your thoughts?
1: I mean, transparency is the other, you know, paramount principle of privacy, right? Like, minimize, make sure that you have purpose limitation, all that good stuff, and then provide transparency to the users whose data is being used. Um, I think the biggest challenge is um, what happens when a recipient of the information, right? Like when when the person who the notice, for example, a privacy notice or any attempt at providing transparency is directed at, is not prepared to receive that information. They don't have the necessary underlying knowledge. The burden is still on the data controller, the collector, the processor, whoever it is to provide that transparency. But How do you bridge that gap with that lack of knowledge? And I think that's become painfully obvious now with the internet, but it was a problem that was always there. I mean, who, if you could find me one person on the street in America who could concisely and accurately explain to me how credit scores are created. That would be amazing I I unless they work in the industry, I can't imagine that they would actually be able to verbalize it for you. like you know in theory, right? or oh, if you don't pay your bills, your credit score is going to be affected. and if you check your credit score, the credit score is going to be affected, which by the way, still doesn't make sense to me. No one's explained to me why that is the case um all of these but but in reality, right like what actually calculates your credit score? What factors are relevant? I guess we could ask Equifax or a company like that. Maybe they'll provide information. Maybe they're a privacy notice. I, I've read it a couple of times, and even I, being a privacy person, didn't really understand what was happening. Why? Because there's more to the privacy notice than the privacy content. There's a lot of jargon and and, and assumptions that the recipient understands the business or that the recipient understands the industry. and. To an extent, a company obviously has to make an effort to compensate for that. But how far can you go before your privacy notice turns into a hundred page compendium on <laughs> how the credit score industry works? Uh, so it's it's just, it's becoming unattainable to some degree. Um, I think we could do better to fix it, right? I think... When we figured out in the 80s and the 90s that the future was computers, we realized that we needed to teach children how to use computers or they would be permanently disadvantaged in their life, right? They wouldn't be able to compete at the college level. They would not be able to get the best jobs, et cetera. So we decided collectively, we need to teach kids how to type on a computer, how to print things, how Word works, how this works. Maybe it's not consistent enough. Maybe it's not advanced enough. Some schools do it better than others, but we did sort of agree that that was the way to go. We haven't gotten to that point when it comes to privacy and when it comes to online security and when it comes to the internet in general, like we just don't teach it enough. um, And that just creates a pretty... I don't want to say insurmountable because I think some people do a better job than others, but it does create a really challenging hurdle, right? Like if the average person doesn't understand what an IP address is, what, what transparency are they going to get from a notice that tells them how their IP address is being used? I just, it's it's a struggle. Right. Um, so and and I think it's it's kind of unfair um to the companies that have to deal with this, right? Because as usual, there's bad actors out there. Let's assuming that the conversation we're having at any given time is not about the people that are intentionally trying to do something wrong, the average company out there may not be going a hundred miles above and beyond, but the average person wants to comply with the law. I don't think that companies are actively trying not to comply. It's just the bar. Is getting very high on transparency because people just don't understand what you're talking about, and it, there's just no amount of background that you could give in a concise way that will really compensate for that. When you're in an industry like ad tech, or you're in an industry like health tech, or you know AI, I mean, look at the the, the frenzy that's happened around AI. A lot of which is manufactured anxiety that I feel genuinely bad about because. Guess what? AI is used consistently and has been used consistently for the last decade plus in a lot of different industries. Once again, credit scores, mortgage decisions, parole decisions are made in part by using machine learning. I don't think the average person realizes that. So am I scared of chat GPT? Scared of the way other AIs are used. Chat GPT is like a the thing online if you don't use it it doesn't really if it. it's it's affected some people's lives in a negative way but i don't see a terminator uh, you know surge of gpt happening anytime soon but if we're that concerned about ai there's ai out there that we should be thinking about right that is being used to impact people's lives in like a very real way Um, that I 100% think we should be vetting? Like how does the credit score industry work?
0: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head around AI. So that's my concern as well. So just like you said, some people don't understand what an IP address is. So now we're moving into areas where Compute is even that much more complicated and less transparent, right? So we don't know how these AIs work. We don't know how they're being used. We don't know what facet of them are being used in decisions. Like you mentioned, parole, that's very scary, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it, it, some of the stuff is already out there. I worry sometimes that the frenzy about Chat GPT, which in some instances is a very real concern, right? Like the per, like the the continued um amplification of non-factual information is mm-hmm. a very real concern. Uh, these articles that we read that are terrifying about people whose lives have been impacted by cl- incorrect claims made by chat GPT. I, I read about someone who um uh, I think was an educator or uh, who who chat gpt claimed that had real issues with the law um that those have the potential to impact individuals greatly but those are kind of like non legitimate outcomes of ai like they're quite I presume unintended i doubt that the way chat gpt was created was intentionally trying to do this there's technology out there that's used to make determinations about whether or not you're getting a mortgage And presumably that's working as intended and it's broadly used. Same for, for credit scores. Like there's, there's technology there that is, is broadly used and affects all of us consistently. Um, So I would focus my attention on the very real instances of automated decision-making that is happening that affects everyone as opposed to having another segment on the news about chat GPT claiming that X, Y, and, you know, John X is dead, but he's alive. It, it, that's an outlier outcome. Um, but there's, there's technology out there that's embedded that, that we should be very concerned about. I mean, cars nowadays heavily rely on technology, um, There is a lot out there that we should be vetting more closely. And, you know, GDPR, with all of its flaws, did realize that automated decision making can be a real problem, especially in highly sensitive areas like credit score. There is no way. I mean, I guess I shouldn't say no way because I don't know enough about credit scores, but it, it, it would be hard for me to believe that the way credit scores operate here would be deemed acceptable under GDPR. It's just hard to believe because I've seen so many issues, even on myself, and I've experienced it closely because I received a a social security number and then started building my credit score as an adult when I moved here. Um, I have had conversations about my credit score dropping to try and understand why. And the reasons were baffling. A background check was conducted on me. And I was like, yeah, that was the US government. I was getting a visa why does that affect me? Right. It's very odd. And, and God knows we do background checks for a lot of reasons. Um, so it's just, it has such a real impact on people's lives that, you know, I, I would worry less about Chat GPT. I'm not saying it's negligible, but I would worry less about that. And I would tackle first the types of technologies and machine learning that already are embedded in highly sensitive areas of our lives. And then I would worry about chat GPT telling me whether or not, you know, a piece of news is accurate. Why are you getting your news from chat GPT anyway?
0: Right. Yeah. Right. I tell people like, don't use it for that. Like it's not, no. I mean, you can search the internet yourself. You don't need it to help you do that.
1: Yeah. Like it's, it's just, I get it. (laughs) it's just right like that's another example of like are people like trained that we like we grew up even i grew up i'm in my 30s i never had to question whether or not the the documents or things that i was reading were accurate like I i didn't have to like verify information elsewhere that's that's a pretty recent problem um and you know it it's I think we're all painfully aware of that now. And I think a lot of us do verify information. But, you know, when you talk about ChatGPT, the people that I've spoken to, they're like, oh my God, I gave incorrect information. I'm like, when have you ever done an online re- like search of any sort and just taken it at face value?
0: Absolutely. Right.
1: <laughs> I don't know. Check a second source just to see if it's completely like, Out of whack. I. It's just funny to me that like that is really the problem we've identified with ChatGPT. It's it's just it's it's a little. I'm worried that it's it's just a shiny thing that we're using to distract people from the real problem. Yeah,
0: yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. I want your thoughts on cross border data transfers. I think you're the perfect person to ask about this because. Oh, what a fun topic. It is a fun topic because a lot of my friends in Europe and me, like I've been doing these transfers for as long as they've existed, right? So once the GDPR came out, once you know a lot of these new regulations started coming out, people started looking at cross-border data transfers like it was a new thing, and people were like hair on fire about it. But it is part and parcel of business. It has been for many years. You know, a lot of companies have been very mature in how they do that. But how do you think it's changing now, if at all, as a result of some of the new, more emerging technologies, regulations?
1: Um, I think. I think cross-border data transfers are one of the most sensitive and most pressing issues of our, I mean, honestly, of my career. There hasn't been a day in my somewhat short-lived privacy career that that has not been a pressing concern um, for a number of reasons. I worry that we are moving in the opposite direction. we see more and more countries coming up with data transfer limitations. And again, sort of to the conversation we were having before, the nature of the internet does not support conceptually the idea of geographical segregation. That's just not how the internet works. That's not what we built it to do. We built the internet to bridge distance, not to make it greater among us so it is i think intellectually concerning um i think it's also you know there's there's so much into the way that the data transfers conversations have evolved that is to me frustrating because the concerns that are voiced by organizations are very valid um government monitoring, the invasive nature of some of the things that have happened in the last 20 years. I mean, there's no one who's not concerned about that. Um, and not because, you know, I always joke about, well, you know, you'd be concerned about government monitoring only because you have nothing to hide. That comes from a place of privilege. That joke comes from a place of privilege of having, of always having lived in countries that value democracy. Um So I'm painfully aware that there are real concerns with government monitoring of its citizens. I just, it's not just happening here. And I say this as a European, European countries do citizen monitoring, everybody does. So this idea that the real bar to data transfers to the US is the monitoring that occurs in America. Like, yes, it's a little different. Yes, there are specific concerns We need to address them. I agree. I mean, America went through a history-altering event with 9-11, which led to some highly concerning legal decisions being made, which I think we all agree now. We understand why they happened, but I think we're all probably in agreement, at least most of us, that it's time to move forward from some of them. Um, and, And they're still creating challenges today. What worries me is, as we talked about, the internet not subject to geographical borders, neither is the economy. It's just wishful thinking to imagine that the U.S. economy or the European economy or the Chinese economy could thrive if we suddenly shut down borders. And we saw that firsthand with COVID. So because we do live in a global economy, whether or not some people want to live in it is a different issue, but because that is the reality that we are in today, and because we're moving at a very high speed towards a more and more technological society, because that's where we want to go. That is collectively what we want. I saw my own life experience positively impacted by the advancement of technology. I moved here when FaceTime was not a thing. And I lived in the States when FaceTime was not a thing. And I could not talk to my parents and see them unless I was home on my desktop or laptop and I turned on a different, you know, chatting mechanism like Skype or something, and I could talk to them. And then it became an app, and then FaceTime became available, and then iMessage became available. And suddenly, we weren't paying to talk anymore. I wasn't paying to send a message to my dad to tell him that I got to the hotel safely. It closed geographical gaps for a lot of us. It's, it's. I, I can't imagine anyone seriously arguing that we were better off before. Um, as it always happens, people took advantage of it. Some people took advantage of it. Some people paid a price for it. Um, I am a big believer, and this kind of ties into everything that we've talked about before, that if you can have transparency, if people understand what is happening, I think you can get to a place of accepting that your data is needed to do X, Y, and Z. That's what it's being used for. You'd still use the service you'd still want it. Um, and and I think the instability that's being driven by the open issue of data transfers is, is concerning. It, it creates a, an instability and an uncertainty for companies, big and small. So I think it's a common mistake to think that the people that really suffer from the instability in data transfers are big tech. The majority of tech companies that are successful, the top 100 tech companies are from the United States or from APAC, there's very few from from Europe. Um, These are global companies, as big or small as they may be. Someone like Reddit, someone like um, ourselves, like Double Verify, these are all companies that are not big tech, but work globally.
0: I don't know. Localization. So we see that a lot of APAC around laws around localization. Yeah. I think people imagine that localization solves more problems than it actually does. Right. You still have to secure the data. I mean, to me, it doesn't really solve the problem that they think it does.
1: But also, I mean, at least from my perspective. Right. I think that we have an understanding of localization that is faulty. Like people are like, I'm just going to get a European data center. That is not localization. No. You would have to spin up a completely separate environment. Make sure no one outside of the EU has access to it. Any vendors that you've been using up until now for your primary environment, kiss them goodbye because they're not in the EU. All of your vendors have to be localized. All of your resources have to be localized. If something breaks down and the one engineer that can fix it happens to be in San Diego, you better be prepared to put him on a plane because he's not going to be able to help you. No matter if you could stop a massive data breach from happening, that would be a data transfer. It's just not to mention that even if you solve all of those problems, I still haven't heard one reasonable explanation as to how you avoid liability under the Cloud Act. Like every time I have a conversation with European counterparts about localization of of your services would solve all these issues. And I'm like, what about the Cloud Act? We, We would still own the environment. So we're still subject to U.S. laws. It doesn't. So what what am I doing now? Spinning off a subsidiary that I have a less than a than a majority stake in. So it's an independent. Like, it's just it's I. Right. I, I just can't understand. I maybe I'm just not smart enough. And these people are just like fully outsmarting me and they have it all figured out.
0: But. I don't know. I agree with you a thousand percent on this. And I always wondered, I'm like, some of the ways that people do these laws, it's almost as though they think data is like a widget that fits in a box so they can move from place to place. And we know that it's not that way.
1: And I mean, like, but but it's understandable, right? Like, what's the average age of a legislator in, in any one country, right? Like, how often have they used the Internet? What, what do they know about? Some, I will say, there are some people... In Congress, for example, that are trying really hard to understand the tech. They're engaging with people. They're, um, you know, they're bringing on resources who have an understanding of tech. They're trying. Um, it, it does not give me a particularly, you know, warm and fuzzy feeling when the Supreme Court in oral argument says we're not really the experts here. Like, well, you're making the decision though, so right. I'm 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 concerned <laughs> that you would. That comfortable saying that out loud. I mean, on the one hand, you're like, oh, thank God they realize that they're not that they're talking about things that maybe elude their grasp a little bit. But on the other hand, I'm like, man, you make the law of the land. So wow. Yeah. (laughs) But you know, I don't think that's a solvable issue. That's a byproduct of democracy, right? Like no one's ever gonna be all knowing. So I can probably get comfortable with that um what what makes me less comfortable is once again the lack of understanding of what it would take for example for localization gives space to some players out in the industry to say things that are not true and it's a very uncomfortable place as a you know business vendor to have a conversation with a potential client who's like well this this other vendor says they can do this. And I, you know, you're sitting there and you're like, I'd be fascinated to learn how.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Because this is not happening the way you think this is happening, sir. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, you never want to be out there calling people liars. It's just like, yeah, you, you know, we need to think about these like things. <laughs> it's just, it, it takes a lot of, you know, uh, eloquence and touch that maybe, you know, to, to take us back to the beginning where you were like, you speak truth and what, I, maybe I'm not the most <laughs> like delicate person. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've been known to say stuff like, well, we'll be in a conversation. So like, well, this other company does this. And I'm like, yeah, that cannot be true. So
0: it's <laughs> just right.
1: Maybe they misstated it. Maybe it was misunderstood. I'm not calling anyone a liar, but let's level set on the fact that this is impossible.
0: Right. So
1: And move on from there, because I think that's the most valuable use of our time. And, and you know, some people respond positively to that. Some people, not so much. So um, it's always interesting, but it does worry me that it leaves space for... um, A lot of, let's call them embellished claims. Yeah. And some of Uh, us are just like, this is how it is. Right? Like, I'm telling you the truth. Do I have a solution? I say, I don't know all the time, which makes a lot of people uncomfortable when it comes from a lawyer. I'm a big proponent of saying, I don't know. Oh, how are we going to solve this problem? Mm. I don't know right now. We're going to have to think about it. <laughs> it's like, where do you think the law is going to go in the next two years? Like, I don't know. I would not be here if I knew where the law was going to be in the next couple years.
0: <laughs> right.
1: I, I would be doing other things. Um, so it's it's just a very interesting, ever-changing environment. and. There's, we're, you know, you probably feel the same way that I do. I feel like we're constantly bombarded with like information. It's like, oh, Fiji just passed this privacy law, and I'm like, I do not have the emotional capacity. Right? Now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy for them, but
0: <laughs> yeah, I have a very long reading list. I just flag it, and then I have to go back to it later. It's just a lot.
1: I mean, honestly, sometimes it feels like by the time you're going to be done with all the reading a new law is going to have, like, like I feel like in the last couple of years, Canada's churned through so many different versions of updates to Pipida that every time I, like, bookmark something to read and I don't make it a few weeks later, there's a new version of it. And I'm like, right. I guess I, good thing I didn't read the other
0: one. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, my thing now is, I hate when people say, well, Someone's proposing this or proposing that. I just want to know the end, the end result. It's like, I can't keep up with that.
1: The frenzy, the frenzy about all the bills that are being proposed in different state houses and state senates. And they're like, this bill would require, I don't know, pink walls in every office. And I'm like, well, let's assume that that's not going to make it through committee. And then it's going to get edited out. Yeah. Um, it, it, It is. It is entertaining. And like I discovered new laws that I hadn't heard of all the time, like this Louisiana law. I don't get involved with content, so it makes sense that I wouldn't know about it. It has a tangential impact on privacy, right? It's not a privacy law, so it makes sense that I wouldn't have gotten an alert for it. But I read this article on The New York Times that was all about how laws like that have the potential to change the Internet. And it just gives you an idea of how much you have to pay attention to when you work in our industry. It's just like, it's not even just the laws about privacy, not just the laws about security. Now, not just the laws about AI. You got Europe putting out the Digital Services uh, Act and the Digital Markets Act, which are tangentially related to privacy. And now you have all these other like content issues that by virtue of existing on the internet, do have privacy-related concerns. So it's, I mean, I could use like two more brains. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever seen, um, my husband and I are big fans of the Avengers and the Marvel movies. There's a scene in Doctor Strange. I don't know if you're a fan, but there's a scene in Doctor Strange where he he's a magician and you can see him sleeping. And while he's sleeping, he's using his astral projection to read books. And the first time I saw it, I was like, that that's what i want
0: (laughs) yeah right yeah i want to be able to do that how do
1: i learn how to do that um it's it would be helpful
0: oh absolutely
1: absolutely you you could get caught up on that reading list
0: absolutely i agree well, if it were the world, according to you, Beatrice, that we did everything that you said, what would be your wish for privacy or data protection anywhere in the world, whether that be technology, regulation, human behavior?
1: Just any any wish ever for private?
0: Yep. Any wish.
1: I will say this. I think as privacy professionals, we could complain a lot about the complication of the industry, but to some extent, it keeps us all employed. So. It's, you know, wouldn't want it to get too easy. Uh. I think, I think it would just, you know, I think it would connect back to finding a way to bridge the gap with end users, with just the general public. If we could find a way to bridge the gap between how technology works and what role their data plays into it. I think that would enable us to have more transparency. It would enable us to have probably even more effective minimization techniques because you would find yourself being able to limit things that you now are using to make sure that people are actually able to use your services that maybe you wouldn't need if they knew how to use the services better. So yeah, I just, and, and honestly, the funny thing about it is that it would benefit people above benefiting companies. There's, there's obviously a a flow down benefit to the companies who are now better able to communicate con concepts and, and get across the information that they need to get across and largely want to get across, but it would just greatly benefit people, um, make them more comfortable in their lives and enable them to use services without being worried. I mean, sometimes even I worry about stuff. I boarded a plane last Christmas to go home for the holidays. And I found out that British Airways uses facial recognition to board you. And I was like, how does this work? Or like, I was like, I I, kind of putting two and two together. Obviously they have a copy of my passport. So they know sort of what I look like. They're probably mapping my face. I'm like, do I want them to be able to do this? Like, it Because, you know, like I have clear. I voluntarily engaged in that. I made a decision, maybe not a smart one. Some of my friends are like, I would never use clear. I find it helpful. I make it through the airport much faster. You could use it for sporting events during COVID. There was a lot of value to it for me. Um, so I made that trade off knowingly. It didn't feel that way as I boarded that that plane. It didn't feel like I knowingly engaged in that facial recognition exercise. And and I, it was one of the times where I kind of felt like, you know, the average non-tech, non-privacy person who was like, I wonder where this data goes and what they do with it. Um, so I, it's not a good feeling. And if I could snap my fingers and bridge that gap, I think it would would help a lot of people greatly. People, businesses, governments. Um, yeah, so that is that is my privacy wish. I'll write it on my Santa list for the holidays, see if he can bring it to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a great wish. I agree with that wholeheartedly. There definitely needs to be more transparency. And a lot of times thinking, is this even necessary? Yeah. You know what I mean? I think if people felt that it was necessary, yeah, they would be more comfortable as well.
1: It's actually like some of the things that we're required to write in privacy notices for transparency's purposes. I mean, truth, like we all know, privacy notices for a lot of companies are CYA exercises. I'm like checking the boxes of everything I have to write. And like, you're going through and it's like, you got to have a section on security. And you're like, okay, well, there's a lot of companies out there that'll write like, oh, our systems are the most secure. And I'm always the one that is like, if you look at my privacy notices, they're all, they all have this in common. I'm always like, we do everything we can, but no system is 100% secure. And people hate that. And I'm like, I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> I'm sorry that's uncomfortable and does not conform with your expectations. But the reality is if I told you there's nothing that could possibly go wrong. I would be lying to you. And maybe if they understood how technology works a little better, they would understand why, you know, things sometimes go wrong. Human error, technical error, bugs. There's there's a number of reasons why things might go wrong. and It's not intentional. It's not malicious. The last thing I want is for it to go wrong. Yeah. I'd rather tell you the truth but it doesn't yield the result that we think it does. mean, it's, I think if we could could bridge that knowledge gap, not entirely, like I don't expect everyone to suddenly become an ad tech expert, but just understand it a little bit more, I think it would help people. And I, I am a true believer, and this is my unpopular opinion. As I told you before, I'm the unpopular opinion person. I'm a true believer that if people understood it a little better, on average, People like the internet the way it works. They like getting some degree of relevant advertising. I'm not saying like I saw you in the shower two hours ago, and I know you're out of shampoo. Weird <laughs> more like, you know, I know you like sports Beatrice. Did you know that this is this is a cool reference for you? You might be aware of it. Did you know that the savannah bananas are coming to visit Massachusetts and you could see them? Have you ever heard of them? Oh God, you no. You got to look them up. They're this like baseball team that does like dancing acts or kind of like a an event. It's, it's not a real, it's like a, um, what would you call it? Like um, a show baseball team. There's a couple of teams that do this and they all play each other and they tour the country and you go see them and they'll like, sometimes the batter will come out in stilts and sometimes they'll like all do a choreography, all of the outfielder. It's super funny. I had no idea they existed. I had no reason to know they existed. The only reason I found out they existed is that Instagram, based probably on the fact that I follow every single baseball team in America, every single football team, every single basketball team, every tennis player that breathes, was like, you know what? This woman would like this. And I once saw a video that was sponsored, and I loved it. And I started following them and I go look at their new videos every day and they bring me true joy. And I can't wait until they get to Massachusetts and I can go see them live because I'm gonna love it. It's gonna be a great night. I would have never had any idea they existed. So I really truly believe that the average person does not hate everything that happens on the internet. If they had a little bit more understanding, a little bit more control of it, I really don't think we need to alter the internet that much it's It's a pretty amazing invention and it's it's so awesome and it's brought a lot of joy and a lot of um, solutions for people it it gives you access to information you never thought you would have like i mean i I still am the I know my parents are supposed to be the awe at the internet generation, but I really still am it. Probably because I moved here before it was as pervasive as it is now with smartphones. So I still feel like grateful when I get to talk to my friends and I don't have to worry about paying for it or all of that. But it's just, I really think people don't hate advertising on the internet as much as we make it out to be. It's just, I don't think they understand the crucial role advertising plays in keeping the internet free the way we know it today. And if they did, maybe they would have a different take.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. Very cool. Well, thank you. Check out the
1: Savannah Bananas.
0: You got to check them out. The Savannah Bananas.
1: (laughs) They're amazing. I'm telling you, it is such a fun. If you're just having a bad day, you go on Instagram and you look at their videos, it's impossible not to smile.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: Oh, silly. And they're like this family event and there's all these children. It's just, it's just, it it looks amazing. I can't wait. It's.
0: Oh, I'm going to check it out. Well, thank you for that tip. Thank you so much. Well, it's been great. It's been fantastic to have you on the show. And I'm sure everyone will love the episode as much as I do. This is great. This is great.
1: I hope so. We can always uh, catch up again in the future. I'll be happy whenever you want me.
0: Definitely, definitely. Thanks so much. And I'm happy to chat with you further in the future. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. Bye.